0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Highway Community's weekly podcast. It is great to be with you, whether you're tuning in live or after the fact, whether you're here the week after Easter or at any other time. Today, we're concluding our teaching series, RSVP, an invitation to pray with Jesus during Lent. Over the last six weeks, as we've moved through the Lenten season, we've been exploring the prayer that Jesus gave His disciples when He was asked to teach them to pray. What Jesus gave them was sort of like the masterclass of all masterclasses. Are you all familiar with this term? Masterclasses are special lessons which have historically been given in subjects like music or art. And involve students of a discipline observing and learning from a master or an expert in said discipline. And now, there's a company, aptly named Masterclass, that's pulled together a library of virtual Masterclass lessons across a range of subjects. For a monthly fee, you can learn a talent from someone who set the gold standard of excellence for that talent. You can learn songwriting from Alicia Keys cooking from Wolfgang Puck, and tennis from Serena Williams. Through masterclass, experts at the top of their game provide online lessons to people who want to grow within their game. There are an average of 20 lessons per class, which run an average of 10 minutes per lesson. Now, the idea of mastering Serena Williams is terrifying forehand by watching 200 minutes of video seems pretty appealing, right? Well, it does to me anyway, but clearly it takes a whole lot more than that. Ultimately, you got to get out there and do it and fail and get up and do it again and hit repeat. To grow in a meaningful way, in anything truly meaningful, you got to live it. In our teaching series, we're reflecting on the six petitions that comprise Jesus's incredible instruction on how to pray, his prayer masterclass, if you will. And as part of our journey through this prayer, we're reflecting on the invitations to live it. We're pressing into these invitations to allow these words to form and inform our hearts as well as our day-to-day lives. So once again... Let's gather under Jesus' leadership and look to him as our teacher. Let's look at the sixth and final petition of this prayer, found in Matthew chapter 6, verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. As is the case for all of the other petitions in this prayer, Jesus taught it by living it out. It didn't take long for him to experience temptation— or testing, which is another way to translate this word. Let's take a look at Jesus' first encounter with testing, found at the very beginning of his public ministry. Following the incredible moment of his baptism, where God the Father declares Jesus to be his Son, whom he loves and with whom he is well pleased, and where the Spirit rests upon him like a dove, following all this, Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness and led to a series of tests. Let's check it out. In Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 1, we read, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. So here Jesus is in this barren desert, the Judean wilderness. He's been fasting for 40 days and he's starving. In fact, it's been said of this level of fasting that when hunger pains return, it signals that the subject is beginning to starve to death. And we see at the end of verse 2 that Jesus was experiencing hunger pains, that he was hungry. The devil knows this and digs directly into this very painful and very real experience that is hunger. When the tempter says, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread, he's essentially saying to Jesus, you're hungry, right? You want food? Go get it. Go eat. Go satisfy your real and present need. But Jesus sees through it. The tempter is being manipulative with his words and is communicating between the lines. Between the lines, he's basically saying, if you're really the son of God, why are you out here starving? Wouldn't the son of God have access to the most basic necessities of life, like food? And if you're the son of God, then where's your father? Why isn't he providing for you? Is this actually a part of his good plan for you? Like, there's no way God's definition of good could possibly be right, right? So go do something about it. Does this sound familiar? Well... The tempter used this same strategy in Genesis when he was being manipulative with his words while communicating with the woman in the garden. When he said, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And when he said, You will not certainly die. In the garden, the tempter also cast doubt on God's definition of good and suggested that God missed the mark. And in the garden, the tempter also basically said, Go get it. Go eat. Go satisfy your real and present need. Well, unlike the inhabitants of the garden, Jesus is totally on to the devil and foils his attempt to plant seeds of doubt about God and his definition of goodness. In verse 4, we see that Jesus responds with truths from God's word. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus sees that this test is about identifying what sustains and gives meaning to life. He quotes Deuteronomy 8.3 when he begins by saying, man shall not live by bread alone. Now, Jesus doesn't say that man shall not live by bread at all. He acknowledges that bread is important. But this human material reality is to be put in balance with and set in perspective beside a greater spiritual reality, which is that the ultimate source of true life is God. Jesus essentially says, It's God who will tell me who I am and what I need, and his very words will sustain me. Jesus correctly identifies that which sustains and gives meaning to his life and that which transcends his physical needs. Jesus passes this test. So, the devil gives it another go. Test two. He takes Jesus to the holy city of Jerusalem to the highest point of the temple this impressively high spot may have been the southeast corner of the temple which at one point was around 300 feet above the ground about the length of a football field here the devil not only twists his words he also twists god's words as he quotes scripture we see this in verse 6 if you are the son of god he said Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Do you notice a similarity between what the tempter says here and what he said in the first test? Here again, the tempter starts a test with the clause, If you are the Son of God. Through this, The devil attempts to sow dark seeds of doubt as he questions and presses into Jesus's identity as God's beloved son. When the tempter says, if you are the son of God, he's essentially saying, "Okay, if you're really God's son, if you're really his beloved, then surely he'll send angels to protect you. Then surely he won't let your foot strike a stone. Then surely he'll respond if you cry out, and he'll pass any test you have for him. He'll come at your beck and call. But Jesus sees through it. The tempter is manipulatively communicating between the lines. Jesus sees that the devil actually is tempting him to test God, to manipulate God into showing up on Jesus's terms. The tempter quotes Psalm 91, 11 through 12, which reads, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all of your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Of course, Jesus knows this passage. He knows God's words. He just revealed during the first test that God's words sustain him. And so, of course, Jesus knows the verses which precede what the tempter quotes. What is conveniently left out here is the beginning of that Psalm, verse three, which says, Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare. What the devil leaves out is this part about him and what he's up to right now. Jesus sees through this attempt by the fowler or hunter to snare or entrap Jesus. Jesus sees all this and knows God will save him from that danger. So let's check out Jesus' response. In verse 7, we read Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6.16 and calls the devil out on what he's actually trying to do. Jesus sees that this test isn't about whether God will send angels to save him or a way for God to prove his love for his son. Jesus sees that this is a test about whether or not to test God. About whether or not to see God as some sort of cosmic bellhop that can be called at our beck and whim. The tempter suggests that Jesus put God at his service. But Jesus knows that the actuality of God's design for our posture towards him is reversed. It is us who should be at God's service and not the other way around. Jesus passes this test. So the devil gives it a final shot. Test three. Jesus is taken to a place where he is able to see all of the kingdoms of the world, every one of them. This may have been made possible perhaps through a vision. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us that. But what we do know is that somehow, through this vantage point, Jesus and the tempter can take in all of the kingdoms of the world and their magnificent splendor. The devil says in verse 9, All this I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. When the tempter offers the splendors of the world to Jesus, if he bows down to him, he's essentially saying, the kingdoms of the world are everything, and the road to this kingdom is through me. But Jesus sees through it. He knows that the kingdom of God is everything and the road to this kingdom is the road to the cross. Jesus sees this manipulation for what it is and reads between the lines and rejects the devil's offer. This thinly veiled attempt to tempt Jesus to circumvent the unimaginably painful experience of the cross on which he would suffer physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Jesus rejected this offer because the darkness and death of Friday must precede the dawn and life of Sunday. This is the glory and story of Easter. This is the glory and story we celebrated last week. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan! For it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus commands that Satan leave in no uncertain terms. He quotes Deuteronomy again and demonstrates his unwavering allegiance to God the Father. And what happened next? The devil leaves him. And not only does the tempter leave, God sends angels to attend to Jesus. The same angels that Jesus refused to beckon on his own terms, God sends under God's own terms. Jesus experiences the promise of Psalm 91. God commands his angels concerning Jesus to guard him in all of his ways, and they lift Jesus up in their hands so that he does not strike his foot against a stone. Jesus passes all of the tests— And the devil is sent away, utterly defeated. The sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer is, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We follow a Savior who was no stranger to temptation, and we too encounter it in our lives. Moments and even seasons of testing are part and parcel of the path of following Jesus because the tempter wants to oppose God's people at every turn. And so we pray, lead us not into temptation because temptation is all around us and we don't want to be led to it. And we pray, deliver us from the evil one because when we find ourselves in tempting contexts, We need God's hand of rescue to be delivered from it. Ensuring a posture of humility is important when we pray this petition because, in doing so, we admit that we need to be led by God because we cannot lead ourselves. And we admit that we need to be delivered by God because we cannot deliver ourselves. We come before our Father acknowledging our frailty and fragility, and we come before him acknowledging our need for his strength and fortification. And so the invitation here is to admit that we are weak and to experience strength in God by coming near to him, both before and during testing times to claim the promise of James 4.8, which says, Come near to God, and he will come near to you. When Jesus was weak with hunger and tempted beyond human understanding, he found the strength to triumph over testing by drawing near to God and his word and experiencing God's nearness. Jesus knows that man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, because he had already experienced the sustaining power of God and his word, that which transcends the sustenance of food. Jesus knows not to put the Lord your God to the test, because he had already experienced holy submission and service to God and the beauty of that. He knows he is to be at God's service and not the other way around. Jesus knows that the splendor of all of the kingdoms of the world pale in comparison to the majesty and splendor of the kingdom of God, which Jesus himself came to inaugurate. And he knew the road to the cross would be necessary to the unfolding of that kingdom. Fortified by his Father and his Father's word, Jesus stands up to testing and shines truth on the deceiver's lies. And so, as we leave this Lenten season, a time through which we're hopefully strengthened in God, And as we close out our teaching series, let's consider the way the Lord's Prayer can help us stay on track in the way that God's Word helped Jesus stay on track. And let's reflect on the invitations in this prayer to come near to God. As we pray, hallowed be your name. We're invited to recognize that only God can make his almighty name hallowed, and we're invited to magnify and praise his holy name. As we pray that God's kingdom would come to earth, just as it is in heaven, we're invited to consider what that kingdom looks like and to keenly and actively look for its unfolding and come under what God is making new. As we pray for God's will to be done, we're invited to release and surrender our own agenda, our own will and designs in favor of that of our good father. As we pray for daily bread, we're invited to be present in the moment because we trust God will provide for all of our needs, not only for today, but also for tomorrow. As we pray for God's forgiveness, we're invited to humbly recognize that we're broken and receive God's unconditional love and forgiveness. And we're also invited to extend that same unconditional love and forgiveness to others, all others. And as we pray for God to lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil, we're invited to humbly admit that we need to be led and delivered, and then humbly follow God's leading and receive his deliverance. This beautiful prayer that Jesus gave his disciples and us is a gift. It teaches us not only how to pray, but how to live, how to live in a way that draws us close to God and experience God's closeness to us. So as we close out our time today, I invite you to consider what needs to be interrupted or tended to in order to experience the gift of God's closeness. What stands in the way of drawing near to God? Are there priorities that need to be rebalanced? Is there a pain from a wound that needs to be healed or something else? What could it look like to remove those barriers? What could be a first step? And a second? It might feel overwhelming and at times even hopeless. But my friends, Jesus resolutely walked to and emerged victorious from the cross so that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can experience God's closeness and newness and hope in Him. So may we live this prayer that Jesus gave his disciples on a hillside by the Sea of Galilee, and may we live this prayer, this gift that Jesus gave us. Please join with me now in lifting up this prayer, and let's close it with a doxology and praise God and magnify his kingdom and power and glory forever.